Morning, everyone. Please stop texting me. Everyone's doing that. <laughs> Mel and I have got this uh, series we love watching called uh, SEAL Team. Any of you watch it? Any of you watch it? It's kind of a Marines thing, and there's this guy called Sonny on SEAL Team. Yeah? Right? And, and uh, anyway. John is a... Uh, if you haven't seen it, this is not going to work, but John is like a better-looking, wiser version of Sonny. I'm going to try and help us to process our souls um, through what I call the Prince of Parables. If uh, Spurgeon was the Prince of Pe- Preachers, the parable of the prodigal son is the Prince of Parables. I don't think there's any parable that... Uh, demonstrates and explains the heart of the gospel like the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to ask, plead with you, that you will put pause on pastoral familiarity, because we all know it, we've all preached it, but uh, there's always more, right? There's always more. And uh, whether you're processing last night or whether you're processing last year, um, I believe that Jesus is going to help us to find a gospel remedy for our famine of joy. A gospel remedy for our famine of joy. I'm going to read the whole chapter, just dive right in. And it's actually three parables uh, about three lost things, or maybe four. And so let's go there. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Read, think they need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. It's amazing as we go through the Gospel of Luke, how much of ministry happens around the table with Jesus. Um, and we often say in our church, circles are better than rows. Disciples are made better around tables than from behind pulpits. We elevate preaching absolutely, but Jesus' disciples were, were, were table-formed disciples. And around tables, he often told stories, parables. And the word parable is to throw down in the dirt alongside taking these lofty truths, eternal truths, and telling them in images like fields and farmers and merchants and coins and judges and widows in a way that people say, I get that, I get that. And so here we see three lost objects, or maybe four, a coin, a sheep, a son. And Warren Wearsby talking about this chapter says there's three words that characterize this chapter, lost, found, and joy. And if you count up how many times the word either joy, rejoice, or celebrate is used, you have to say this is a joy-saturated passage. And it tells us something about the nature of the Father's heart the nature of Jesus' heart and the heart of the gospel. And we know that Jesus told these three parables in response to the grumpiness of 
the Pharisees who were accusing him of welcoming tax collectors and prostitutes and eating with them. And Jesus didn't make any excuse for that. He wore the accusation of friend of sinners as a badge of honor. And he told these three parables to demonstrate what he would say in Luke 17. The reason I came was to seek and save what is lost. And we find that in the heart of Jesus, the heart of the Father, the heart of the gospel, is that lost people are precious to God. That lost people have intrinsic value and are therefore worth seeking out. And they are worth seeking out, not just theologically, but relationally. Jesus didn't just come and his first day of ministry, he died. No, actually, he hung out, wasting time, which is never a waste of time, with sinners and tax collectors. He dwelt among them. And then we see the Father's incredible heart. Tim Keller has been so helpful with us in his book, The Prodigal God, where he says, if, if to be prodigal is to be recklessly wasteful and spend everything, it's actually the parable of the prodigal father who spent his only son to win us home as sons and daughters. Isn't it amazing? Now, I realize that this parable particularly is very male. And I want to say, if men are brides by redemption, women are sons by adoption. Can we, can we go there? Let's go there. When we talk about fathers, we can talk about what it is to be mothers and fathers in the church, and Bibi's going to talk more about that. So important. And when we talk about sons, we know that this applies to sons and daughters too, but we're all sons by adoption. How does the gospel remedy our famine of joy? Jesus is setting up a tension between his joyful hospitality and the grumpiness of the Pharisees. He's setting up a tension between the joy of the father and the desperate, destitute nature of his younger son and the grumpy, sulking nature of his older son. There's a tension there, and we find ourselves saying, how come God is so full of joy, and how come I am not? I don't know if you've ever been to Emojipedia, but there's such a thing. And if you go to Emojipedia and say, what were the top emojis in 2020? There was two. The one, I love this, is the clenched fingers, which is the Italian of, listen to me, you idiot. That's kind of appropriate, right? That was, that was the most used. Alongside that was the smiling face with the tear, the top used emoji is also appropriate, right? We're trying to act happy when we're really sad. We're smiling through our tears. I sat with my spiritual director two weeks ago, and he has been such a help to me over years. A spiritual director is like a therapist, except they can tell you what to do. <laughs> and pastors need that sometimes. And uh, honestly, this last year, I don't think we have honored counselors, therapists, spiritual directors, nearly enough as first responders to the famine of joy. We need them. We really need them, especially gospel-saturated ones. And I think what has happened is we have tended in the church to take our sin to Jesus and take our sadness to our therapist. 
And so there's a kind of dichotomy in us. And what we see in this parable is that our sin and our sadness are wrapped up with one another. We've got to find ways to take both sin and sadness to Jesus. He has a remedy for both. And sometimes that remedy is with the help of a counselor and a therapist, a spiritual director and a pastor. Absolutely. Let's honor those people and not treat them like gospel enemies. Please. Can I get a little even Presbyterian amen there? We've, we've really got to learn to work with gospel-saturated therapists. Well, my spiritual director said to me, you know, it, it feels like your season, Alan, is changing. In, in, in your life and in, in church feels like spring is coming but it feels like your soul is still left in the winter of 2020 it feels like your soul needs to catch up with your season and I think he was right and I think many of us might feel like that some of us might feel like we're still in winter too in terms of our season but what is it for our souls to come into a new season We've got to find a way to bring both our sadness and our sin to Jesus. And what's very clear is sadness or sorrow is not always the result of our sin. Let's just get that right. What we see in this parable is that the father is actually sorrowful, but very clearly not in a sinful way. Jesus was called the man of sorrows, but he never sinned. And so sorrow is not always the result of our sin. Sometimes sorrow is looking out and just having compassion on brokenness. And that's what we see. The father had compassion on his son who had sinned. Sometimes our sorrow comes when we see people sinning against one another. And my, how we've seen that in 2020. Sometimes our sorrow comes because of sin committed against us. And we need to see, first of all, that sorrow is not the absence of joy. And joy is not the absence of sorrow. What I saw probably for the first time was the parable of the prodigal father, how there was this longing, sorrowful longing for his sons, both sons. How did the father see the younger son while he was a long way off if he wasn't on the porch looking with an aching longing into the distance of course there was sorrow there why did the father leave the party where he was the host the lord of the manor and go out into the courtyard and implore his son which means to plead unless there was sorrow We've got to realize that our lostness so matters to God that a longing, an aching longing comes upon Him for us. And so when we feel that for people, that is not sin. Can result in sin. Do you know that Jesus is as serious as healing our sadness as He is about healing our sin? He really is. It doesn't always happen in one moment. Often it's a drip feed back to joy. But we can take significant steps. Henry Nowen in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, also so helpful, says this, divine joy does not obliterate divine sorrow. 
In our world, joy and sorrow exclude each other. Here below, joy means the absence of sorrow and sorrow the absence of joy. But such distinctions do not exist in God. Jesus, the Son of God, is the man of sorrow, but also the man of complete joy. Jesus is both Enneagram 4 and 7. He's the guy weeping with compassion in the corner and also the life of the party. His, his joy is complex enough to be, to be able to handle sorrow. And I honestly believe part of coming back to joy is to see the permanent humanity of Christ in heaven. The Christ who kept willingly his nail scars to remind himself of our humanity. We need to see the permanent humanity of Christ in the heavens. We need to see Christ, the sympathetic priest in heaven. And we need to see Christ, the eternal intercessor for us. He is able to save us completely because he always lives to intercede for us. We need to see the deep sympathy of Jesus for us. Sorrow is not the absence of lament. Worship leaders, learn to lead people in lament, not just joy. Lament and rejoicing is far more authentic than just rejoicing. Jesus' joy is more than a sunny temperament. Jesus' joy is an assurance of God's goodness in the midst of brokenness. It's okay if you do not have a sunny temperament. Jesus' joy is still there for you. I wish I had a temperament like Matt Martinez. (laughs) But the more I've got to know Matt, and he does have a sunny temperament, the more I actually see that he knows how to fight for joy too. Secondly, there are two ways to be lost that kill our joy. There are two ways to be lost that kill our joy. And Keller is so helpful with us on this, and I I, I want to probably just pause here for a moment. And the classic way to preach this is the reckless hedonism of the younger son. To be lost is to say, Father, give me my inheritance, and I want to throw off all morality and go and experience life for myself. And that word life or inheritance is the word bios, which means life. And they tell us that in those days, the older son got a double portion. And so if there were two sons, the younger son was essentially saying, give me one third of the farm. The father didn't have like a Bitcoin stash that he could just liquidate, right? He had to actually had, had to sell a third of the farm. No wonder the older son was grumpy. And to say that in a Middle Eastern patriarch moment was highly disrespectful. It was like saying, I'd prefer you dead, Dad. I want your stuff, I don't want you. And in those days, if you did, you would be beaten and banished from the house. But look at the incredible prodigal grace of the father. He sells a third of the farm and says, off you go. Talk about ache. Talk about longing. 
And so we know that one way to be lost is reckless hedonism. And Tabiti Anyabwile says, says this. I love that word, Anyabwile. It's hard to say, but it reminds me of my Zulu degree. Mm-hmm. He says he, he had everything. But he makes himself fatherless, then he makes himself homeless, then he makes himself reckless. He ends up friendless, penniless, and foodless. There's more than one way to be lost and to lose our joy. One is reckless hedonism. And we've seen that this last year. We've seen young sons leave the father's house, and it's broken our heart. We know that there's another way, yeah, though to be lost and to lose our joy. And that is what I would call, would call religious moralism, where the oldest son is still in the house, but he's as lost as his brother. He's as lost as his brother. He's self-righteous. He's judgmental. He's grumpy. He's, he's cynical. And he's lost. And he's lost his joy. And I want to say, man, before we look into our souls, I've found when I, when I read this, I very easily get into the father's shoes and think of the way younger sons have hurt me and robbed me of joy. And I think it's good to spend some time there. What I've found is, it's interesting in the last year, because certainly there have been some that have just run away from Jesus and backslidden, and, and that's broken my heart. How about you? But very often, I've seen this parable as almost kind of from, through a cultural lens. We, we can classically preach this as conservatives are like the older brother, you know, moral but self-righteous and a bit tightly wound. Very easy to see. And then progressives are like the younger brother. They throw off morality, you know, leave tradition and, 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 and just go and experiment with life. And I think that's one way to understand it. But what I've found in our cultural moment, and hear me out, is that both conservatives and progressives are highly legalistic, except they're playing from different rule books. And as fathers and mothers, we've been hurt on both sides of the aisle by highly self-righteous, legalistic older brothers. And that's some of the pain that we feel. I don't know how many I've spoken to here who just gone, how come like in the same day, I'll have one guy cancel me because I'm asking them to wear masks? Are you, you're wearing masks? Shame on you, I'm out of here. On the same day, someone will cancel me because we're actually meeting in person. Well, how come on the same day, you'll have one guy cancel you because you spoke out against racism? Oh, you're a socialist. I'm out of here. And on the same day, you have another guy cancel you because you didn't fully support BLM. I'm canceling you. I'm out of here. How come you have people stalking you on social media to see what you did and didn't post and canceling you from both sides? And now with the vaccine, people are self-righteous and legalistic on both sides of the aisle. It breaks your flipping heart. And we've got to lament that. 
We have to lament that politics has become a religion, and both sides have their own rule book, and they are incredibly legalistic about it. And actually, that legalism can creep into us so easily. None of us are exempt. God help us. That's one of the reasons why there's a famine of joy in the house. Because we have allowed disputable matters to be elevated to the level of creed. And beloved, I want to fill you with gospel confidence to de-escalate those things and say, they're not unimportant, but they are not the gospel. And let's elevate the gospel to where the gospel should be and let those other things be de-escalated and see the Father bring joy back into our house. Now, don't you hear what I'm not saying? Race is a gospel issue. But who you support politically is not a gospel issue. We've got to allow space for the Father to breathe gospel joy to people on both sides of the aisle. The only way we do that is not allow these things to become a law. God help us. Let's dig a little deeper from reckless hedonism and religious moralism. How does that look? Let's stop being the father and mother, and let's say, how does our sonning look? Let me let you into my soul. I've found that because I've been hurt by sons as a father, I find myself regressing from being a father to being a son. It's painful to be a father. And I'll tell you how, you might not check, check out with this, I'll tell you how that looks in my heart. It's much more subtle than moralism and hedonism. Although I will say my consumption of cigars has gone up in the last <laughs> year. Ask my wife. She's like, you're on cigarbid.com again? <laughs> and we've got to be careful of that. Hedonism... We, we, we can take refuge in hedonism, beloved. Whether it's cigars, whiskey, Netflix binges, deep fried Twinkies, I don't know what your thing is, but like, man, guys, let's face it. Let's face it. We want to throw off the bonds of faithfulness because we often don't see fruit of that. So who cares? Going off to a far off country. But I see it deeper than that. I see the younger son in me, as a hurt father, through escapism. And I see the older son in me through cynicism. Escapism in the sense that, I mean, I don't want to squander my inheritance on prostitutes. God forbid. I always say, I'll backslide to a bakery long before I backslide to a brothel. I do say that. <laughs> but escapism in the sense that I found myself dreaming. Wow, what would it be just to have a normal day job? Work in the father's house. That's hard. And the father's farm, that's hard. Find yourself dreaming about another city. Less relentlessly intense. More conservative city. Another state. Sometimes even another country. And we know the gospel moves us, but God forbid that woundedness moves us. 
My wife's got a little side hustle Airbnb business on the side, and we're so grateful for that. <laughs> it's wonderful. It is wonderful. God's provided. We've got two Airbnbs, and I had to confess to her the other day. On our app, there's a little harp sound on the Airbnb app when anyone books. It goes, ring. I confessed to her a few days ago. I get inordinate joy from that harp sound. It's just like, whoo, another booking. Why? Because there's something so unministry about that. It's just sane. Now, now that's not necessarily sin, but, but where that comes, where that gets into escapism. Beloved, we actually need to repent. Because the Father has us serving on His farm. And part of it is we do need to get out of Dodge sometimes. There is some wisdom in having some tent-making stuff that is sane. But escape, escapism, we need to repent of it. How about cynicism? I think this older brother is like George Costanza. You know George Costanza, he always thinks Jerry's got it better in Seinfeld, you know? I can just hear George Costanza, oh, Jerry, you got the fatted calf, you know? Okay, you just give me a little goat, just, just a goat, Jerry. Just a goat. Why do you always get the fatted calf, Jerry? George Costanza, right? We get very George Costanza. We always think the next guy, the next girl has got it better. Cynicism. And the, pro the problem is cynicism is such a, more, a socially accepted sin. The problem is cynicism is really funny. It sells. But, but cynicism can be a mark for our woundedness. Again, Henry Nowen is excellent on this. He says, for me it is amazing to experience daily the radical difference between cynicism and joy. Cynics seek darkness wherever they go. They point always to approaching dangers, impure motives, and hidden schemes. They call trust naive, care romantic, and forgiveness sentimental. They sneer at enthusiasm, ridicule spiritual fervor, and despise charismatic behavior. They consider themselves realists who see reality for what it truly is and are not deceived by escapist emotions. But in belittling God's joy, their darkness only calls forth more darkness. God save us from cynicism. Got an email from a lady in the church last week They've joined in the last six months, and they feel like they've just died and gone to heaven. They are just raving. They're loving it. And actually, we've had a lot of people that have joined that are just loving it. It's just like, oh, there's so, so much life. I just love this. And like sentence upon sentence upon sentence about how they're loving it. And I found myself, before I could rejoice, going, oh, just give them a bit of time. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, God, the cynicism. Just give them a bit of time. Escapism, I was chatting to, to Tom the other day, getting a fact check right. 20 years ago, I heard Tom talk about church planning and how after really bad Sundays of low offerings and low people, he would sometimes go to this employment agency on a Monday and ask if they had any good jobs. <laughs> It just stuck with me. I've been, I've been hearing, I've just been thinking about it the last year. I was like, Tom, did I get this right? And then, and he went a couple of times, and then 
God like gave him just stickability, both of them, to stick it out. And they're going to share some God stories about sticking it out. This is part of the joy of multi-generational yeah. Christianity. They can say, it's okay, guys, we're going to get through God. Anyway, I digress. A couple years later, a lady arrives in his church, and he greets her. He says, what do you do? Oh, I'm, I'm, I work in an employment agency. Oh, yeah, he's like, I know you quite well. You always used to come on Mondays. <laughs> oh, man. But... In that, God got him through. Somehow repented of escapism. I don't see an ounce of cynicism in this couple. I don't know how. But that should be hope for us. It's not that they haven't seen stuff. And the answer to cynicism is not optimism. We know too much to just be sunny optimists. The answer to cynicism is to say, even if people give us worse than we deserve, God through Jesus gave us better than we deserve. That's the answer. It's a gospel remedy. We've got to saturate ourselves in the grace of the gospel because people will almost always get us, give us worse than we deserve. I've got five minutes. So I'm going to land as quickly as I can. Recognize escapism and cynicism in yourself and bring it to Jesus. Recognize that no matter how lost you feel right now, you are of infinite value to God. The beauty of these three parables is that the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons were of great value in their lostness. And therefore worth seeking out. Wearsby says that a poverty comes over the owner when what is owned is lost. You have worth because you are owned and bought with the price. We have to work out the difference between being worthy and having worth. We are not worthy, but we have worth. And we have worth in our lostness. Not just... I'm saved and now I've got worth. But even after we get saved, we can get lost again. And the Lord still feels a poverty come over him because you're not as close to him as he wants. You know when you lose a cell phone or lose some keys or lose a wallet, you feel a poverty come over you. Everything must stop. I've got an old 12-year-old truck. The only thing I miss about my newer car is that gangster flick knife little remote thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, you, you press the button and the key goes, Wah! so gangster. And I remember losing that the one day. And the whole family had to stop. So we searched for that thing. Eventually, I, I tipped the whole trash can. And there at the bottom, covered in coffee grinds and egg yolk, is this gangster little thing. And I'm just like, oh, yes. Covered in coffee grinds and egg yolks still had intrinsic value and worth. You carry the Imago Day of such worth. And we must be careful with our Reformed tradition to not lose gospel worth. We're not worthy, but we are worth. Why is that important for our joy? 
Because at a moment now where our metrics of worth are all jacked up, it's a great opportunity to get gospel worth again. Because you and I take inordinate worth from our metrics. And God wants to save us from that thing of ministry works. Because ministry worth. Is that movie, Chariots of Fire, with a guy running against Eric Liddell before that sprint says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. That's you and I before a sermon, before a counseling session, before a worship set, if we don't get the gospel into our heads and hearts. I've got 40 minutes to justify my whole existence. Oh, now's the time for Jesus to say, hey, you're a little or a lot lost, but you are of great worth to me. And when we get that, we will, we will find joy in repentance. And I, I land here. We'll find joy in repentance. That repentance is that beautiful, my bad, my bad, even if I was sinned against, even if this began with compassion and watching people sin against one another, but, but Lord, I'm far from you. I'm lost in your house. I'm near but far. And, and we see and we know this, but, but I just want to lead us in some dynamics of repentance as we land. One, there's got to be a realization. He came to his senses. And sin has a kind of madness about it, doesn't it? An insanity where we justify things, so easily justify. But, but he came to his senses. You can imagine him just like smelling salts. Oh, smelling the pig dung, looking at his ribs through the rags. I am far. I am lost. And the Spirit of God wants to wake us up, help us to realize our lostness. And then there was a resolve. There wasn't just realization. There was a resolve. He rehearses his repentance. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy. He rehearses, and then he turns while he's still a long way off. The Father sees there was a turning. Still a long way off. The Father is not waiting for you and I to get it all right, to get our act together, to get all cleaned up while we're a long way off. But actually, there's got to be a resolve to leave the pigsty of cynicism, of moralism, of escapism, of legalism, of hedonism, to leave it. Repentance has geography to it. And, and I just want to plead with you, can you put geography between yourself and the pigsty? You don't have to get yourself all cleaned up. The Father will see you from a long way off, but actually we've got to, we've got to take steps, turn for, from, turn for home. And I love the fact that before he can say the speech he's rehearsed, the Father has embraced him. Can we see the initiating love of the Father here? It's not like, well. Embraces, kisses him on the neck. A great expression of intimacy before he can get the words out. And it's actually the Father's affection that leads him to full repentance. And there's a willingness to deal with the consequences. No excuses. I'll just be your servant, but we know. The Father gives him much more than he deserves. As John Stott said, it is a marvelous thing that God the judge would pardon us. It's a more magnificent thing that God the Father would adopt us. 
Adoption is the crown jewel of the gospel. We are adopted sons and daughters. And therefore we repent without fear, but knowing it's a doorway to joy. Let's do that. I wonder if you could just get on your knees with me and we're just going to pray. Yeah, come band. It's nice to have a nice carpet. We've been kneeling on a tarmac in a tent for the last few weeks, months. Prodigal father, the extravagant, recklessly wasteful one who, who spent your very son on our salvation and for our joy. We bring to you our wounded hearts. Father, we confess that as fathers and mothers, we have been wounded deeply by sons and daughters. Thank you for your compassion towards us. And I want to ask you just to actually let it out. If you need to weep, weep. I want to ask you to bring before the Father the people that have wounded you most deeply. And ask the Father to bless them. Ask the Father for grace to send away prodigal sons with their inheritance, even though it costs you dearly. And Father, we, we ask that you would help us not to regress and become like sons ourselves. Jesus, forgive us for escapism. Jesus, forgive us for cynicism. We know these rob us of joy. Please fill us with your heart. Please heal us. Please give us the strength to keep on initiating love for people who are grumpy and people who are rebellious. Please, Father. And then we ask for heaven's joy to fill our hearts. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, Fill us with your light of day, please, Father. By your Spirit, fill us with the light of day.
heal your people. Heal sons and daughters that we might be mothers and fathers. In Jesus' name, come, Spirit of God. Come, Spirit of God. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's just raise our voices together in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Lord. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would come and heal and fill and enlarge. Jesus, Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for your joy.